Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. How many times in movies over the years have we heard somebody say, is there a doctor in the house? I've often wondered about the origin of that comment because, you know, it's used theatrically many times. Uh, I know that obviously that has occurred in real life. Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor present? That night in Ford's Theater, a call was put out to the audience. Is there a surgeon? Is there a surgeon? Today, we're going to talk about the assassination and autopsy of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Dave Mack, we've got so much information here. Let's continue on with part two. As we look at what has taken place, this is the part 
that like millions of other people, I can't understand what happened next. We've got John Wilkes Booth in the theater where he obviously had access because people knew who he was. Now, Booth standing there, he pulls the trigger, he shoots the president in the head, and then proceeds to slash Major Rathbone and then leaps from the presidential booth to the stage. That's the story. And that Rathbone tried to grab his jacket, causing Booth to land awkwardly, possibly breaking his leg as he landed, and then the hunt was on. Everybody else, as you mentioned, is there a surgeon in the house? The president has been shot in the head. They have to immediately get him out of where he is and get him into the care of doctors. I'm sure they just don't grab him up like a child and run out of there. No, when he was initially, when the first assessment was made by the surgeon that, that rolled into the box, he noted that the president was still seated in his chair, in the presidential chair there in the booth, and he was leaning to his right. So the defect or where the injury is, is going to be on the left rear or posterior aspect of the president's skull. And Mary Todd Lincoln was kind of cradling him. He was leaning over on top of her. He's a big man, too. I mean, tallest president we've ever had. He's leaning over onto the first lady, and she's kind of diminutive. So you can see this giant of a man. She's cradling him. She's, I'm sure she's weeping. She's hysterical at this point. And the surgeon arrives, and they know that he's, I don't know that they know he's been mortally wounded. As a matter of fact, People saw, people report hearing the report of the weapon. Many people paused because they thought that it was part of the play. Can you imagine that? And I think that it's much the same kind of response that, that we would have today. We're not automatically going to think that somebody has just been the victim of homicide right in front of us. We think if you're at an entertainment venue like this, you're going to think, oh, this is just part of the, the play. And somebody's down on the stage. They leapt from a box very dramatically. And I think even Booth shouted out, some people debate over what he said, six Semper Tyrannus, I think, which mm -hmm. is the state motto of Virginia, death to tyrants, I think. But you mentioned earlier that he knew the play. Yeah. He picked an actual part of the play where people might think it was part of the show. So he knew what he was doing in terms of the potential getaway. So there's kind of this delay that occurs. It's reported that Mary Todd Lincoln screamed, and it's at that point it kind of jolted everybody. They realized that something truly horrible has happened. And you, you have people that are in attendance. A young surgeon had made his way up to the box. And when he was taking a look at, at President Lincoln, he's trying to assess, which is what surgeons do. That's what physicians do. They're trying to assess a patient to try to understand, first off, if it's trauma-related, where is this these insults to the body that we're looking for? At first, he saw blood on the shoulder. People did see the knife. You know, the, this Philadelphia pocket pistol is easily concealed. They heard what sounded like gunfire. But there was nothing to validate. But Booth's got this knife that actually looks like a big Bowie knife. It, gigantic hilt, lengthy blade. He's brandishing this thing. Rathbone has been cut at this point from his shoulder down to his elbow, I think. He's been slashed. So the surgeon, his first inclination is to think, well, maybe this is a cut. Maybe the president has been slashed in some way. But then as he begins to kind of work his hand up to the 
president's hairline, he pulls it away and he notes that there's blood on the back of the skull or on the back of his head. And then he knows what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a gunshot wound, which is something he would not have been unfamiliar with. Remember, we're still in the midst of a war. Back then, and they didn't have x-rays. They didn't have MRIs. They didn't have any means of figuring out what kind of damage has been done. We just, at this point, know that the president has been shot in the head. What do they do? Start poking? How do they know? Well, what they know, the first thing they do is they're using their bare hands, which, look, you can't fault these people for doing that. And I got to tell you, I mean, if, if you've got somebody there and you don't have surgical gloves on, you're going to use your hands as well. But you, there's a higher, there's a, the bar is a bit higher for surgeons. Certainly today there are. But, you know, the only way that you can kind of assess what's going on is that you're going to feel for a defect. And it would have been a circular defect that he would have sustained. And if folks that are listening, if you will find that bony protuberance on the back of your skull, it's kind of this bump on the back of it. Okay, that's the occipital area. Some people call it the occiput. This injury is going to be three inches behind what they call the external auditory meatus, which is essentially your ear hole. So it's going to be to the to the rear of the left ear and slightly to the left of the midline. So if you find the back of your skull, find the middle of it below the occiput, that bony protuberance, and go right there below that area on the back of your head, that's where the president's gunshot wound is. So when it entered, it actually pushed through the cerebellum, which is that portion of the brain that sits at the base of the brain. It was tough to assess the track of the wound. And even today, you don't have immediate access to x-ray or you know be able to make some kind of diagnostic assessment. But the president, for a time at least, had stopped breathing and his pupils were dilated. He had either shallow respirations or no respirations at all. But guess what? When this initial responding surgeon places his hand adjacent, finds the defect, he pulls out a clot of blood, which had been creating pressure at that point in time. And when he pulled out that clot of blood, Lincoln starts breathing again. So with that spark, with that moment, there's probably hope. Certainly, everybody else is not really going to know what's going on. But the surgeon says, "Okay, I've done this assessment. I've removed this clot of blood. You know what? Maybe there's a chance. The president is breathing. Now, what do you do with him? Because we know we know that they had made the assessment, even up in that box, that they could not take him very far. He sustained a gunshot wound to the head. They know that he's probably not going to be long for this world. That We didn't have <laughs> – you didn't have escalates that drive smoothly down the road on paved roads. The, at best, roads were cobblestone. And in D.C. at that particular time, it was nothing to have dirt streets. And those would have wagon wheel ruts in them. So you, you take somebody that has got, let's face it, probably one of the most serious head wounds that you can sustain, and you put them in the back of a buggy or the back of a, a wagon and try to convey them all the way back to the White House, which is some distance away, down these bumpy roads, they probably wouldn't last one block. So they've got to get him somewhere, and the closest place is his boarding house. It's immediately across the street from Ford's Theater. And people have heard this tale before, but you have to be able to assess the president in his current status. 
the bed that they found, Lincoln's a tall guy. They had to place him kind of, they say obliquely, they use that term, but it's kind of diagonally across the bed so that he would, he could fit on it. And soon you've got all of these surgeons gathering at the house, not to, not, not to mention any kind of other officials. But here's the thing, when you've got more than one physician in the room, everybody's going to have a different opinion. And just think about the added pressure of having the president there. What they did know is that they were going to try to have to assess the location, as they refer to, the location of the ball. We refer to them as projectiles now most of the time, but they refer to these as balls. And this goes all the way back to muzzle-loading days of the Revolutionary War and up to that day in particular because it was a ball shape. It was a spherical lead ball that had been fired into the, the president's head. They had to try to determine the track of the wound. Where did it go? Where did it wind up? And they had this interesting kind of probe, which is, is fascinating. They didn't have x-ray. So what they would do is that they would insert this probe that had these, this kind of fin-like shape to it. And as you go into the track of the wound, there was a certain feel that this probe would generate as it made contact with the metallic body in there. And this was disrupted a few times because as they're doing this assessment with this probe, they're encountering not the lead ball, but they're encountering fractured bits of skull. Because the ball itself cavitated through the area, but as it's passing through the external table of the skull, it's creating other little satellite projectiles that are pointy, they're jagged, so they're tearing apart any any of the little vessels, and there are many in the brain, and you're creating this cavitated area that's filling up with blood. They're trying to keep it drained because they do know, even at that primitive state that they were in, in understanding of how the brain functions, the more pressure you have, intracranial pressure you have, the higher probability that you're going to lose a patient. So they were trying their best to keep this clotted blood out, essentially draining that area as best they could. In that boarding house, he survived. He survived remarkably, I think roughly in the neighborhood of about eight hours. They didn't call it until 7.30 a.m. This had happened, I believe, shortly after 10 p.m., that night when he was shot. So the fact that that they were able to help him survive that long is quite the feat. He just, he couldn't, as the night went by, his breathing became progressively more labored. There was another moment in time where they were able to remove a clotted area of blood. Again, his breathing picked back up. But at that point in time, you, you can't get in to this area. They don't have the ability, they don't have the technology and the tools to be able to perform surgery on the president. This is, in fact, a mortal wound. Backing up for just a second, do they, at that time, take into account the muzzle velocity and this fact that it is just a ball as to how far it could traverse into his brain? And are they thinking, hey, we need to figure out a way to get that out of there? Probably, this is the trouble. This is what the attendings were faced with at this moment, Tom. When they're attempting to do this assessment, Dave, they're sitting there and they're thinking, how in the world are we going to retrieve this round? And even if we retrieve the round, what does this mean for the president? What does this mean for his ability to survive? What does it mean for if he does survive, what his quality of life is going to be like? 
I think that they probably know the further that they try to go down this this wound track, there's a higher probability they're going to compromise the brain's function. They, I think that they they know that. So the, these initial attempts to probe, I, I think, were hopeful attempts. Was he ever conscious? He was down. He was out the entirety. He never gained consciousness. I think that there are a couple of reports that he had begun to snore heavily at one point in time, which is something that is associated with a diminishment many times with patients that have sustained these fatal head traumas that are kind of lingering. And all the while, you've got this other action that's going on. You know, I talked about the clotting that was taking place, but when they're assessing this wound on the back of his head, they noted that there was, they refer to as ecchymosis that was developing around the entry wound. Well, ecchymosis means that there's swelling. It has the appearance of a bruise. And they would have been able to appreciate this while trying to assess him through kind of the, the fog of the gunpowder residue. Because there, there's going to be a tremendous amount of deposition. Just from imagine something that is as black as asphalt. When you're talking about black powder deposition on an area like this, it would have just been surrounding the wound. But they can see that there is there is developing hemorrhage back there. They know that, and this is just externally, they know that the capillary beds have been burst in this area. He's still breathing. He's still, his heart's still pumping. So he's bleeding out into this area. Swelling is occurring. Not only do you have swelling occurring externally that they can appreciate vis-a-vis the ecchymosis, but there's also intracranial pressure is building up because of the swelling, the trauma that the brain has gone through. And the, and the more it, it, it swells, the more it swells the more diminished the capacity of the brain to function and more compromised it has become. Interestingly enough, I'd mentioned the wound track. It clipped the top of the left aspect of the cerebellum and then kind of there's been questions over the years as to the exact track of the of the wound. And we'll get to that in just a second relative to the autopsy. But there is one thought that the that the track of the round went straight ahead toward the back of the left eye, okay? And that would have left it in the left hemisphere of the brain. Then there's another school of thought that it traversed from left to right. So if you put your hand back where I told you initially, your finger back there where the entrance wound would have been, you start there and then you go to the right orbit of your eye that the projectile would have lodged immediately behind the right eye. And it kind of traversed diagonally across the midline. So you've got it crossing from the left hemisphere of the brain into the right hemisphere of the brain. We do know that the brain was was greatly damaged in this event to the point where Even at autopsy, they were having trouble assessing that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Years ago, when I got out of my field full-time, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had sleep disorder. I had depression. And for me, I had to turn to someone to talk to, somebody that could aid me along the path to healing, to restore me to that person that maybe I was at one point in time, to make me better for not just myself, but my family. 
If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do this anytime that you like. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com bags today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com slash bags. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The president's body was removed from the boarding house. It was placed into a carriage. The body was given a cavalry escort. There is, there's a bit of, I hate to use the word irony in this, because that can be misunderstood. But it's fascinating to me that John Parker, the security guard, was absent that night. But as soon as the president was shot, they talked about the streets were filled, filled with men on horseback carrying sabers. You had tremendous security that showed up after the fact. That's quite the tragedy. They actually had to use soldiers to keep people back from the boarding house. And it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but why not beforehand? 
a lot of this could have been spared. That was just not in their their way of thinking. And Lincoln was notorious for slipping away. He was not a pretentious person. They refer to him as rough-hewn, that he grew up in the wilderness, and he truly did. You know, those areas that he occupied as a small boy, starting in Kentucky, going to Indiana, and then winding up in Illinois, that was a frontier, man. It was hard living. And it wasn't lace curtains and crystal chandeliers and all that sort of stuff in his world. He didn't like pretense, I don't think. And so he would dismiss security periodically. He would he would not want to be surrounded. He wanted to be with people. That was his nature. And so that night, his body was conveyed back to the White House, which is where the autopsy actually took place. In one description, they talked about how the the room in which his body was examined was sparsely decorated, which is <laughs> kind of interesting given Mary Todd Lincoln's preoccupation with spending lots of money on redecorating the White House. There was even a congressional investigation into her expenditures. But they placed him on a slatted surface, wooden boards covered with sheets and cloths, essentially. And to do the examination, there were multiple physicians there. And who would actually do it, Joe? Would it be the surgeon that was on duty with him? You've got a couple of surgeons that were participating. There there was really, you had doctors that, that studied disease, but you didn't actually have what would be called a pathologist. Okay, like we, we have nowadays. You had a guy that was a surgeon. For a long time, the terms surgeon and physician were kind of interchangeable. You had one surgeon, Dr. Curtis, that was present for the autopsy and was actually conducting the autopsy. He's the person that removed the president's brain. How do you go about opening a head in this environment doing an autopsy? Well, you use it with a handsaw. You do it with a handsaw, and they had a very specific type of saw that they would have used. It had a small wooden handle on it. The teeth of the blade were more robust than, say, for instance, a hacksaw, but it is a saw nonetheless that would have had to have been used to do this. I've actually used a handsaw to open a skull at autopsy, and it is laborious. We usually use a striker saw, which is I've talked about before, which is this agitating saw where the blade moves back rapidly back and forth. And within just a couple of minutes, you can have what's referred to as the calvarium, which the calvarium is actually created. <laughs> it's, it's created, and some people call it the skull cap. You remove it after the incision in the bone is made with the saw, and it once it's detached, it's referred to as the calvarium, which is essentially the roof of the skull, so that you can get access to the brain. The, the trick is, when you're opening a skull at autopsy, you have to make sure that the opening is sufficient to the size of the brain, because if you're trying to take it out, the brain can be described when you're touching it as having kind of a gelaginous texture to it. It's very fragile. And most brains are not immediately dissected. Many times when you dissect a brain, what will happen is you will set it aside and place it into a, a bucket of formalin, which formalin is a type of formaldehyde that's used in a medical context. The ideal thing is to let a brain sit up for about two weeks before you dissect it. Because you want it to be firm, and it takes that, that long a time to get it to that consistency. You have to make sure that the incision in the bone 
is sufficient to the task so that that calvarium when you take it off is that defect that it's created by its absence is is large enough so that you can get your fingers around the base of the of the brain into the floor of the skull when they finally did get their hands inside of the skull and these doctors would have been doing this barehanded by the way in case there there was no such thing as a rubber glove at this point in time so everything is done since a touch they're kind of feeling their way around I would imagine that the room, they would have been very respectful. Uh, I've always wondered what kind of light source did they use. There is no electricity, so are they doing everything with some type of of lantern, perhaps? Is there another person standing there with a lantern that's illuminating the area? Maybe the lantern has a mirror on it to take advantage of, of the reflected light, and you're shining it onto this area. But a lot of the stuff is having to be done by touch. We look at it. From the standpoint of what we have now and how we work and how we go about things. But for them, President of the United States of America would get the best care and postmortem. He would get the best of the best at that time. So even when we talk about them using their bare hands, these are experienced individuals. Yeah, these guys would have seen, Dave, I cannot emphasize to our listeners how much experience these people would have had. Even if you had not been on the battlefield, there was so much trauma. I don't know if any point in time in our history as a country, the medical sciences have been around this level of trauma that they had witnessed low these four to five years prior to this event where you had people's lives just blasted, their bodies are just blasted apart and you're trying to do everything that you can to save them. These guys would have been highly skilled for that day and highly skilled in the sense that there was a lot of stuff they were having to do blind. And of course, it was, you know, in our eyes, it was very barbaric. There were a lot of amputations back then and this sort of thing. And the person that was using the saw, Dave, this would not have been the first time that they'd had one of these saws in their hands. It goes back to the old adage that I, I think I've stated before, see one, do one, teach one, that gaining this experience through all of these cases being thrown at you. But when the attendings, and there were two, got their hands inside the skull, one thing that they were able to appreciate was the floor of the skull. If you think about the area that's immediately adjacent, up and above, behind, up, up and above and behind your eyes, when the doctors got their their hands into, you know, what I guess what you would refer to, some people use the term the cranial vault, you still you're probing, trying to remove the brain carefully because the brain is greatly traumatized. Some people might use a term called macerated. It's really, really chewed up at this point as a result of this cavitating injury that's generated by this rather ample projectile. When you're trying to remove the brain, you're being very, very delicate. And even to this day, we try to be very delicate when we take a brain out of the skull. You're having to trim away all of the connected vessels that are coming up into the base of the brain and also the optic nerves to try to cut them loose. But as they're running their hand on the underside of Lincoln's brain, they notice something. They feel something. They know that the floor of the skull, which directly above the eyes, is uneven. I have actually cut my finger on the floor of a skull before when I'm running my hand trying to remove the brain. You can clip the latex on glove. The bone's very sharp. So if you have these these fractured areas, which Lincoln did, those bony prominences in there are very thin. I mean, they are eggshell thin. And, and the edges of those bones become very, very sharp. 
So as this bullet is traveling through there, you not only have the force of the projectile, the mass of that bullet traveling through this very delicate tissue, creating this cavity, you've also got this kinetic energy that's being pressed through there. And it comes out in like a wave. And you get these, I've turned them as kind of concussive fractures, if you will, where this energy is being transferred, this huge amount of pressure. Because just imagine this, you're creating this hole that if you look at the tip of your little finger right now, just look down the length of it, think about your little finger, that's about, at the tip of it, that's going to be about the size of the hole that this thing would have created. So you're injecting this energy, this blast, this force through this tiny little hole in an otherwise perfectly sealed environment. So where's this energy going to go? Where it's going to go, it's going to seek out the weakest points and it's going to fracture. But this is significant for them because this explains something else that they're seeing manifested on Lincoln's body, which had been manifested before they actually pronounced him dead. And that was his eyes were swelling, the right eye in particular. And that gave them an indication that that might be where the projectile rested. The right eye swelling, the the pupil is completely blown now. It's dilated all the way out. There's no longer any kind of nervous control over it. It's open. The eye is progressively swelling, swelling, swelling. And this is confirming everything that they're believing. But it's still it's still a confusing mass that they're holding in their hand. They're, they're wanting to get to this projectile. They're wanting to find it. And one of the doctors, when you're reading over the notes of these physicians that are involved in this examination, you can actually sense that they knew what they were doing. And when I, let me rephrase that to this extent, they knew what they were involved in. They were involved in the postmortem examination of a man who had led the country through this horrible time, which they had borne witness to. They had borne witness to it in a way that no one else had, not even soldiers. They had seen kind of the cost in the field hospitals and the decisions that he had made along the way. They knew that the man's brain that they were holding in their hands had been making decisions directing the country over all of these years. And they described kind of the the solemnity in that room, the quietness of it. And the only thing that actually shattered those quiet moments was when they finally removed that brain. There's blood and tissue that's falling away from it. There's a basin down below that's made out of porcelain. You've got this cavernous room. It's very quiet. Earlier, you heard the sound of that saw being drug across the surface of the bone. And all of a sudden, there was this metal clank sound. It shattered the silence. Absolutely shattered the silence. And what was it? It was a mushroomed projectile. They never could pinpoint the exact location of it, but almost like, I don't know, some kind of metaphysical event, the bullet presents itself through this announcement that shatters the silence. And you knew, I think that they knew from, as scientists, that they had found what they were looking for.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Any kind of gunshot wound that we have nowadays, we do x-rays prior to doing the examination. First off, the configuration of the bullet has changed because the bullet was a sphere when it entered or when it exited that round. But when it slammed into the back of the skull and it met that bone, the makeup of that bullet changed at that moment in time. It reconfigured itself. It's impacting bone, so it's creating these little bits of bony shrapnel that are being driven out into the brain. And also little elements of that lead ball are being left behind. And in x-ray, when we put an x-ray up on a board, on a light board, after we've taken this this x-ray of the head, you can actually see a little lead storm. And it, it gives you an idea of the track of the round. So you can actually, if you do, if you do a lateral 
X-ray, which means on the side, X-ray the side of the head, you know, kind of like when you go to get your X-rays done at the doctor and then you take an X-ray face on, laying face up, you get an idea of directionality. Does it cross the midline? Those sorts of things. We have that that advantage nowadays. They didn't. So at best, it's a it's a guess at this point in time as to where it actually wound up. Did the actual autopsy provide closure, relieving the doctors and attendant surgeons of any responsibility in saving the president? I mean, was there a thought? Had they done something different, he would not have died. But the autopsy confirmed there was nothing that could have been done. It was actually assessed to be a mortal wound. Look, anything that's been said about these physicians and how they kind of ran their hands over this wound and they're trying to save his life, it's all people being very speculative about what was done wrong and what was done right. You have to measure it by those times, how they were limited in their ability to make an assessment on a patient back then. But I look, I got to tell you something. These guys that were doing this, this assessment on the president, I would I would tell you that, I, <laughs> okay, I'll put it to you this way. Let's take a modern-day surgeon, a trauma surgeon, and put them into a field hospital in 1863 in Gettysburg and have them do physical assessment on a patient. First off, in a less-than-sterile environment and without the aid of, of any kind of radiographic assessment. It's tough. It's it's tough. I think that they, they did the very best that they possibly could. And even if he had survived, because it would appear that his brainstem was left intact, you know, that's why he lived as, for the length that he did. You know, his chest is still rising and falling. The autonomic nervous system is still intact to a certain degree. Breathing, heart beating, all those sorts of things. Did he have, was he conscious? No. No. Would he have remained in a vegetative state? Well, yeah, if they could have release the pressure on the skull, on the brain, because the brain is going to continue to swell. Well, they they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the medicines that we use, those anti-inflammatory things that we apply nowadays to try to keep swelling down. That, That stuff didn't exist back then. And so they did the best they could with what they had. And when everything was said and done, 16th president of the United States of America, dead, assassinated. And a new president is sworn in, President Johnson. Yeah, and with him came came the wrath of what was to be known as Reconstruction. I think that probably, and again, I'm no historian. Reconstruction, I think, took on a different a different tenor than it would have otherwise. Interestingly enough, you know, it was within a month or so after this that John Wilkes Booth is being autopsied. He's being autopsied on the deck of the USS Montauk up in Washington. They had shot him. In a barn, the round that he took went between the C4 and the C5 cervical vertebra, which they retained. They actually kept that. They At his autopsy, the, the physicians actually trimmed that out and kept it. You can see it in a museum in D.C. to this day. He was immobile for about two hours. They say that he lingered for that period of time. Some people have said that he had vocalized things. Other people say that he remained silent through it. One of the famous things was he asked to see his hands right before he died and made some kind of comment like useless or something like that. But when he died, they sewed his body up in an army blanket and hauled him down, down put him on a, on a tugboat and took him almost 80 miles away to the USS Montauk. And here's the big question with, with Booth, because he had tried to change his appearance. He was known for this, this mustache that he had. Well, he was absent that mustache when they got him. 
they took him onto the the deck of that boat, laid him out on a carpenter's table, as they put it, and began to autopsy his body there. If you want to get an idea of the attitude of what happened, the physician that directed Lincoln's autopsy was also there for the autopsy of John Wilkes Booth. He showed up at the Navy Yard. And he's a he's a military officer, but he's an Army officer. And when he entered on to the deck of that ship, he didn't make his presence known. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to salute the flag and, and all those sorts of things that the Navy does. He went immediately, I mean immediately, to the body and started just kind of <laughs> he just immediately went in and started doing this autopsy on, on John Wilkes Booth at this moment in time without a lot of fanfare. I mean they're they're going at it, man. They're they're gonna do the autopsy. And that gives you an idea they're you know, they were very angry and that's kind of I think demonstrated to a certain degree in the way they treated Booth's body. And of course Booth's body after they had done the autopsy and and assessed it he was eventually buried, but his body was moved around and disinterred several times before it finally wound back up with the Booth family. So you've got these two men that literally changed history with Lincoln and Booth, both ending ending violently, their lives ending very, very violently. Booth's name is still in our lexicon, but maybe it's there for a good reason, to remember the horror that he, through the single action, wrought upon arguably the life of perhaps the best president we've ever known, Abraham Lincoln. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.